Lower middle market businesses are a vastly underappreciated and undervalued space with tremendous potential for returns. Unfortunately, finding and acquiring a company can be tiring and filled with inefficiencies, wasted time, and ultimately dead ends. But our sponsor, PrivSource, grew out of the need to navigate through the chaotic waters of the lower middle market and help buyers source high-quality acquisition opportunities. PrivSource provides a fully vetted M&A deal platform with hundreds of live engagements thus far. Unlike other M&A platforms, PrivSource fully vets all members and deals to ensure they meet high-quality standards. They also never charge a referral or success fee on any deal that is sourced through the platform. The platform sources deals from a variety of industries and verticals, with coverage in the U.S. and Canadian markets. Deals range in size from $5 to $15 million in revenue and $1 to $5 million in EBITDA. If you're seeking to acquire and operate a lower middle market business and want to see more deals and pay less fees, check out PrivSource. As a listener of the podcast, you can save 50% off your first month by going to PrivSource.com circle. That's PrivSource.com circle. Welcome back to the Circle of Competence podcast. I have two special guests today. My first special guest, I'm excited to announce, I am partnering with Victor Corrigan, and he's partnering with me to grow the podcast. He's uh, he's originally from Atlanta and will be headed to UNC Chapel Hill this fall to get his MBA. Not only is he a super super sharp, uh, good-looking guy, he's a Southern gentleman, he's also looking for a small business to purchase in the Atlanta area. So if you know one, hit us up. Our real guest today is Mike Griffin, managing partner of Griffin Brothers Companies, a diversified family holding company for service businesses, real estate, golf, and hospitality, and a small business seed investment program called ZoomUp, all of which we will hope to cover today. Mike is also heavily involved in the entrepreneurship program at the University of North Carolina, my alma mater. He's been a wonderful mentor for me in all things life and business, and I'm really excited to dive into his philosophy on business, entrepreneurship, and more today. So, Mike, welcome to the Circle of Competence podcast. Thank you, Benton, and welcome, Victor. It's been a pleasure to be here, and also it's a pleasure. I actually had the privilege of meeting uh, Victor and his wife, Mary Claire, when they first came to Chapel Hill to tour. So, uh, glad to see you guys have collaborated and look forward to our discussion. Perfect. Well, Mike, why don't we just level set, and if you wouldn't mind just giving us your sort of backstory, the story of the Griffin brothers, and just try and squeeze it into five minutes if you could. I hope I can do it less than five, but I will tell what I'd consider a fun story. So we considered the start of our family business is when my dad started with his uncle in February 1961. So just by arithmetic, we were at the 60th anniversary Quick story along those lines. My dad grew up, his parents were factory workers. Uh, no one had ever gone to college and extremely hard work. And he knew he didn't want to work in a factory and had this opportunity to get into the tire business with his uncle. He committed his uncle and he said, well, I'm going to go to Daytona 500 before I start. So on February 26th, he drove to Daytona with some buddies to watch the third uh, annual Daytona 500. Drove back that night after the race and then started at 7 a.m. That, that morning on February 27th. So our 60th anniversary is coming up in, in a few days, and uh, it's fun to tell that story and to, to be a part of that. So by arithmetic, I was born a few years later in 65, so I grew up in a family business. Um, never wanted for anything. It was a classic middle-class family business. They had a tire store of 15 employees, worked hard, did a, created an impeccable reputation in Charlotte. 
Um, yeah, my, my journey, I, I don't know that I was going to go to college, but frankly, I, maybe through hormones, I started chasing a girl that was uh, college bound and I realized to keep up with her, I needed to go to college. And luckily she went to Chapel Hill and I somehow got in, I think maybe because I was a first generation student, they probably let me in. But, uh, but anyway, uh, chased, chased her to Chapel Hill, uh, fell in love with the university, fell in love with the business school. For some reason I liked counting beans and, and became an accounting major. And, uh, had an entrepreneurial experience in school that made me realize instead of going to work for one of the big accounting firms, maybe I should go work for my family's business. And I'm very thankful for that. So I do have a debt of gratitude to the university and, and the experience that I had there. And that's why I do enjoy giving back time with meeting sharp people like yourself. But uh, to, so basically summer, 80, uh, I'm sorry, December 87, come out of the accounting program. Back then it was a four and a half year program. At the time, 15 employees, about a million and a half revenue but an impeccable reputation that my dad created. And my dad had this wonderful charisma of any time a customer came into the door, it didn't matter whether they were a blue collar worker or the CEO of the largest bank in, in Charlotte, he'd always say, you know, what should I do? My dad's very entrepreneurial. And, and at that time he started saying, what should my son do? And then, and not too long after helping to automate the family business as it stood, we had the opportunity to get in the communication business. So my first entrepreneur experience was selling cell phones, paging internet service eventually did that for 10 years wonderful experience also during that same time a customer came in and, and basically saw us in a way to get into the waste business we got into the construction and demolition waste business and so in, in the late 80s we kind of had these two opportunities uh, right place right time the city of charlotte's growing um, and then from that point forward we kind of created a diversified family business we went from me and a half uh, revenue business to uh, in, in 2016, hitting a little bit north of 50 million revenue. And, and as you mentioned, having kind of a four-legged company where we had the tire business that had grown to 10 stores, the waste business had grown to five facilities in the Carolinas. Real estate was probably about 700,000 square feet of commercial business real estate that we owned and leased to others or leased to ourselves. And then we got stupid enough to get in the golf, golf and hospitality business. And I guess we'll talk about that later. But uh, uh, that's that's where we were at that moment in 2016. A company here in Charlotte called Carousel Capital had a portfolio business called Express Old Change that had a desire to make a Charlotte presence. And frankly, they they paid us probably about 40 percent more than I thought we were worth to to buy our entire business. Um, so they took over our 10 store operation business. We kept the real estate, signed long term leases. And um, then maybe the final chapter I'll say, and I hope I'm staying within five minutes, the, the, the final piece of this chapter is that we still had service work in our blood and we knew that we had something to give and maybe put a couple, connected a couple dots. We started this investment strategy called Zoom Up, where we invest in young, inspiring entrepreneurs that want, are willing to get their hands dirty and get into the service-based businesses. And could not be more proud of the eight young men that I've invested in. And hopefully I can find some young women to do it because I think they can kick their butts. But the, uh, the, the, these young men have in three and a half years have grown a business about equal in size and revenue to our existing business. So we're our current business. We sold the 22 million of our revenue of that 50 million. And we've now replaced it with looks like this year, about 31 million of revenue for zoom up and about 25 million of our legacy business. So we're, we're back to that North of a 50 million revenue business. Wow. That's where we are at this moment. That's amazing. There's so much to dig into. I think first, let's just go all the way back to when your father had the 13 or the 15 employees in, in the tire business. What was it 
when you reentered that business that that helped you guys scale that business and then and then you know redeploy it into the other two businesses are, are there any takeaways lessons from going from the, the 10 to 15 employees to 10 locations yeah well and, and maybe it didn't say this too you know as a kid i always worked in the business i can remember probably as early as eight nine years old uh cleaning up the warehouse and putting tires, straightening the tires. Then I changed tires and I delivered parts and stuff. So I, I grew up in the business and knew the team. Um, you know, one is my father's ambition. He dad always wanted to grow. He always wanted to do something bigger than that one store. And he did dabble in some duplexes and some rentals and some other things. And he, he tried a lot of different things around the service business that, that maybe in hindsight, he just didn't have um, the partnerships and maybe me coming in helped give him more of the ability to expand. But without a doubt, it's his charisma, his ability to talk to um, sharp leaders in Charlotte looking for ideas to grow. You know, the other thing is just luck of city. I mean, we were in the right city at the right time. If, if my dad's, if we'd have been born in Detroit and my dad's ambitions would have said, you know, let's grow, frankly, we wouldn't have grown. I, I, if I remember correctly, Detroit was probably about 6 million citizens when I was born in 65. Charlotte was 200,000. Charlotte's now a million, and I would guess Detroit's a fraction of that six. So the growth of Charlotte is what gave us the opportunities to grow. Um, so Dad's uh, uh, risk oblivious. He, he's not scared to do anything. If you, if you told him, let's go build a 60-story building, he, he would be willing to build it himself versus hiring a GC. Um, I'm not as risky as he is in some respects, but it, it's his, his charisma, his ability to open some doors, and then my, uh, I guess maybe my uh, good fortune of being work hard and 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 help make some things happen. One question that uh, that Victor and I were discussing prior to you joining the call was what differentiates various service businesses. So, for example, in the tire business, like wh- why would I go to a Griffin Brothers location versus someone else? And and to kind of highlight that question, I always I came to the finance world through the the Warren Buffett value investing, and his mantra was always to find the competitive advantage. So the question I was kind of asking Victor that I really wanted to ask you is, how do you create a, a sustainable competitive advantage in the service business where you're offering a similar service to someone else? That's something I've always been curious about. Yeah, to me, it's 100% customer service, and it's living by the golden rule and applying the golden rule to your customers. You know, you, you you've got to uh, do unto them what you would you would expect to be done upon yourself. In, in the irony of this, these world that that we lived in, you could say it was competitive, but it really wasn't that competitive. Uh, ironically, not everybody lives by those rules, and I think if you apply it, you, you become a great value to your customer. I can guarantee we're not the most expensive. I can guarantee we're not the cheapest. We were the best value. And, and then, you know, just sometimes it's patience. You know, we were not an overnight success. My dad worked his fanny off 60 years ago until I got out of school. And yeah, we, we maybe took advantage of his reputation and scaled it up quicker during the last second half of our 60 years. But it's because of all that hard work he did creating that reputation. You know, you can't, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't do that without him for sure. So, nor, nor can my brother do that without what my father created so i hear you i think that's something that i definitely want to come back to is is um is family and the ability to give something back uh to future generations i'd love to come back to that if you're able to are you able to kind of break down how the PL and the the economics of a typical service business and like the tire and oil change 
world works, I, I wouldn't know the first thing about running one. Yeah, well, you know, just if, if you want to talk EBITDAs and stuff like that, that type service business, because it's competitive, and, and what I know now, it runs a little bit lower EBITDA. We, we were probably working our butts off to have a 7 to 10% EBITDA purely on operations. Now, we separated real estate from service. So we, we had uh, entities that owned the real estate, and it leased it back to the business that ran the service. So um, our, our real estate, um, if, you, if you looked on the EBITDA, was probably still single digits, but higher, probably 8%. So if you look at it as a holistic company, we're running at a decent number, probably 15 to 18% EBITDA um, uh, combining the real estate with, with the operations. So th that's the, the, the makeup of, of, of that business. Um, it's kind of an interesting business. So that we always, in the beginning, our name was Griffin Brothers Tire Sales. And obviously that was the primary thing. In reality, 35% of our business was tire sales and 65% was service work, you know, doing under the hood and under the car service work, brake shocks, tune-ups, et cetera. The, uh, almost like the grocery store business, you know, milk's a loss leader, tires were a loss leader. You know, selling the tires was just to get the customers in the door on a recurring basis. Uh, where we had higher margins was the service. And, and, and it's, it's kind of interesting how that business evolved. I think uh, when, when dad started, when, when my dad's uncle started in 1928, I think it was a totally different business. But uh, when we started in 61 and then kind of how the thing evolved in the nineties until we sold it had changed. Um, you know, the other thing too, the, the customer base changed. Our, our sweet spot was managing um, females, uh, you know, by percentage, a large percent of our customers were females, you know, whether it was the, you know, whether it's the um, homemaker that's taking care of the family or whether it's just professional people, we, we created a very comfortable, clean uh, environment to, to, to appeal to, to that market. And that's, that was kind of our success in, in that space. It's a really interesting segmentation there. And, and it kind of gets back to this idea of customer service. You mentioned a word, uh, the word value. How would you define value in the service industry? Is it just total, totally based on cost? Is it highest quality? Is it speed? Or is what combination of those would it be? I'd be curious. Yeah, some combination of all, but but basically, always thinking about how would you treat yourself. You know, I mean, going to a customer's house and, and giving them a, the full story. Well, let me back up. So, the customer's house is what we're in now. Back in the day of working on the car, is um, you know, fully communicate to the car if if, if you know if they need tires in ten thousand miles. You don't say they need tires. You need tires in ten thousand miles. Let them make the decision. You, you explain the risk of maybe not doing something versus doing something. So it's better explanation. Um, now we were extremely hardworking and, and, and prompt and fast. So we, we uh, and my dad, um, and, and I apologize for a little emotional, but um, your dad, uh, my dad's still, he's still living, but he's actually going through some dementia, but his, um, his passion for you know, leading by example, it's amazing. He, he would be the first to change tires or do whatever to get customers out the door. And I, I do have one story about customer service and I, I need to not be emotional so I can tell this, but I do remember as a, as a high schooler. And, and by the way, I truly was a blue collar kid. I had uh, my, my blue collar shirt with Mike on it and the Griffin Brothers tire. So when I worked on those Saturdays, I was dressed up to, to change tires, but I do have this vivid memory and I didn't make the mistake. Um, so a customer came in on a summer day to, to uh, 
to uh, go on vacation and somebody failed to properly mount the tire. And as they pulled out of our parking lot, the tire fell off the car. <laughs> I'm talking about, you know, it was a, and I, if I remember, it wasn't really a couple, it was a couple, not a family, but anyway, they were going to the beach. We, we kind of ruined the thing. Of course, they come around the corner spitting mad. And my dad had just um, bought a dream car. He had just bought a Mercedes 450 SL, it's a two-door car with, with a coupe. And, and I remember it, without hesitation, he gave him the keys and says, let's get your stuff and you take my car and we'll fix your car. When, when you get back, and I just remember thinking, you know, that's pretty extraordinary. And of course, that, that customer was a customer for life. And he actually told that story a lot when he came back in over the, the coming years. So you, when you make a mistake, you're showing up to it and fix it. And, and and go forward so yeah well, i hope he brought your dad's car back with four tires and not three victor I, I think victor had a question for you yeah so mike in any of these service businesses like your your people is your greatest asset it's your your key asset so i'd be interested to hear your philosophy on hiring retaining and training employees in the service space yeah, that's it. That's it. So some of these examples is kind of living by example, right? You, 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 as a leader, you have to show what you expect from your employees, and some, and there's some balance to that because if you do that too much, you're you're micromanaging your business and you can't can't scale it up. That's a whole other subject. But I, I think um, when you create that platform and, and you 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 expect your team to live up to those qualities, and and if you don't, you know, you try to mentor and correct it. And if you can't correct it, you have to, you have to move on. There's a better place for them and a better place for you to be. So, you know, there's some element of, of um, patience to some degree. You, you should never grow as fast as the talent around you can let you grow. So if, if you have a certain limited talent and, and now in these service trade business that we're in like plumbing, you know, we're not going to go take every job if we don't have the te- talent here to take it. You know, we, we actually shut the phones off or we, uh, stop the advertising to make sure the calls don't come in until we have the talent to take it. Um, big believer in training, big believer in, in apprentice programs to where you 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 get best in class leaders and put people under them to to learn from it. Uh, our big goal now is is as far as the Zumba strategy, as far as growth, is that when we hire tenured technicians, we make sure they have the personality and the desire to coach. And often they are coaches, you know, coaches in Pop Warner or or baseball and other things. So we, we, we look for somebody that's got that passion and ability to give back to the next generation. Um, Cause the only way, you know, the, the, the things that we're in now have shortages, you know, for probably two generations, parents have told their kids to go to college. And uh, there's probably a decent percent of those kids that didn't want to go to college. They felt pressure to go. And ironically, if they would have uh, maybe realized there's opportunities there to use their hands and get into trades to be successful, we wouldn't have this massive shortage that we have now. So, our scalability, what we have to do now is find people that don't know they want to be plumbers, don't know they want to be electricians and teach them the business. You know, we just need people that are customer facing, passionate, and then we can teach the trades. So and that's that's how we're scaling up now. And I think in, in, in remembrance of how we scaled up the tire business from one from 15 employees to 220, a lot of mistakes. Man, we made a lot of mistakes, but we, we did kind of learn to push uh, leadership down to um, lower levels and, and make sure they had the right DNA to and passion to teach people. Yeah. So with that, I'd be interested to know just how you structure your teams in, in terms of like starting with you down to kind of the next level manager 
frontline managers to the frontline service workers? Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell two stories. One, the tire business. And my, my brother did a wonderful job running that. And I, and I probably made a mistake of not talking about that. Um, I got out of school in 87. My brother was I played golf in college, and after, which is warm to all of y'all's hearts as far as loving to play golf. Um, when he came out of college, he got into real estate for a few years. And then he came back into the family business in the early 90s. And um, my dad and I had fallen in love with the waste business. And we were growing that. Dad was in the ops, and I was on the permitting. So I had to grow that. So he really took that tire business from maybe two stores at the time he started to, to the 10. And one of the best things he did and things that we're, we're still emulating is that each store manager had total control of their income statement. They saw every ounce of revenue, every ounce of expense, and they were paid on the bottom line. So it, it give or take 50% of their income came from the performance of their store and they became owners and, and that owner quality is definitely what allowed us to create a, a best-in-class brand and, and able to expand beyond our personal abilities to manage. So pushing down ownership to lower levels, I think, is the key to the tire success. Um, and that's exactly what we're doing now. We, we call them market leads. So we're, we're looking for this person I just described that has the ability to mentor and inspire people to work for them. Uh, and that, you know, you, I guess you can call them a chef or chief or and, and you can use analogy of chief and Indians. Um, you know, we, we want that market lead to have six people under them that are that are also turning those wrenches of whatever trade it may be. And uh, that market lead has total control of in the income statement. Every month, you'll see every ounce of revenue, every ounce of expense, and he'll get paid on that bottom line. And and that's um, some, you know, Bit and I have had this discussion about capitalism and pushing ownership down to, to other levels. That's our version of that, is that and, that, and that's how I think that we can scale. And, and then we'll let them, and we're already, you know, pre-COVID, we were going to high schools and, and talking about alternatives to, to college and, and that we can supply opportunities. We don't need somebody that knows the business. We need somebody that's got the right passion. And we'll, we'll teach that through this market lead program. I definitely want to drill into the incentives of both those project managers as well as the, 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 like the store owners. One, were there any other incentive programs in place for folks who were you know, below those project managers or the store uh, managers. And then also um, maybe just dig a little bit deeper into how the, how the compensation is structured and, and how you actually attract the people that want to see that, that upside. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the service business, you have to be a little bit careful with incentives. You don't want to ever put a situation and Wells Fargo is guilty of this. You just don't want to be put in a situation to where on paper, it looks like it's good because you're giving them commissions for sales, but then they start cheating the customer. And um, so our, our primary goal was to take this market lead or this store manager and make sure they run it like they own it. And then generally speaking, the store has about 12 employees and that's about the maximum one person can really properly manage. Um, there was There were some incentives, typically not based on a per transaction basis, typically based on overall goals. For, for the month, but most of those um, team members that worked for that store manager were paid, they were, they were paid much higher than average in, of the industry. So that way we made sure we had the best in class folks by their compensation, but they were really uh, managed closely by that store manager and which was like a store owner. And because, uh, you know, we, in our industries, all industries, if you focus too much on commission-based compensation, 
and they're dealing with the front-end customers, you, you are opening yourself up for them to maybe uh, cut some corners and do things for that customer they shouldn't do. That makes total sense. And and it makes sense. You would think that you would be aligning incentives even greater or to a greater degree. But to your point, uh, you can sort of, uh, you can incentivize maybe some adverse uh, behavior, e- even in people that have really good character. I, I, I think that probably a lot of folks with the Wells Fargo we're just trying to do their job and we're just got a little bit too aggressive and cut corners. So yeah, good, good people that got in situations that started doing bad things and didn't probably even realize they were doing it because other people were doing it too. It's a mob mentality that, that it's scary. So how, how do you hire those people? Uh, and then do you promote them internally or are they sort of external that are, that are in charge of the actual P and L's? Yeah, yeah. So in a perfect world, you're growing them organically through your business um, because of, uh, and this, I'm, I'm getting more into the Zoom up side of our investment strategy. And we've, we've got eight Zoomers and eight companies and, and they're growing their teams. Uh, we've done a lot of, we've done a decent amount of headhunting to where um, through, rep, you know, through room, through um, referrals, we hear best in class operators and we, and we go, recruit those technicians and, and if in, in qualified, they buy into our vision and qualified that there's a five-year vesting period to go from a, a, a technician to a market lead. But during that pit, during that time, they're getting paid more than they can get paid anywhere else too. So it's not like they're sacrificing in the context of uh, compensation. But uh, so we, we kind of, go through a five-year dating period where we, we put them in a market lead position. They start getting paid on the income statement thing, but they're not fully vested and have ownership qualities until that period. And when I say ownership qualities, once after that vesting period, when they retire, whoever replaces them has a full-year uh, multiple of, of a form of EBITDA that they pay back to that, that market lead who, who helped mentor them to get to that position. Um, so, we, so we are trying to create an infinite business concept. You know, I, I think, Denton, uh, uh, I remember one of your quotes that Charlie Munger that you quoted that, that it seems like companies have a beginning and end. And that's not the intention. I think you're supposed to try to create a structure that it perpetuates, you know, beyond yourself. And this, this market lead is maybe our attempt to try to create a structure that will perpetuate beyond the, those of us who've started it. So in the um, words getting out, so let me, I'll back up to that story too. The, the words getting out, and I kind of knew this would happen. You know, if you treat your customers right, and you treat your technicians right, you, you pay them best in class um, salaries in the expectations, best in class performance. You know, in, in the plumbing world, you know, a technician two fifty three hundred thousand is considered good as far as revenue per year that they they generate. You know, we're striving for four hundred six hundred thousand a year. So you know. Our technicians are expected to do more. Now we'll compensate them more, but they're expected more than, than your average uh, other person out in that market. And uh, so when we find those and, and, and they, they, the word gets out of what they're doing, it's kind of fun how, how some, you know, others start to realize and we don't have to recruit anymore. And that's starting to happen even this short period of time in Charlotte. So we're, we're, we're excited to where we're going. Well, I want to um, ask you some questions about how you guys got started in the uh, waste industries, but just one last question on, uh, you know, something you just touched on is um, you, you were saying that like a, a plumber would be expected to generate about $250,000 typically. And 
you guys are Not looking for us. like 400, yeah, yeah, yeah 400, yeah, 600. Yeah, 40, 40. So, so is that like you, you guys are um, just expecting greater volume. So like more hours of work. No, that's a great question because it's, it's not a is is the, the concept is more efficiency route management number one, where we focus on smaller markets. You know, if we have a plumber that's headquartered in this Lake Norman market, which is one of our primary startup markets, in in Charlotte, just by proximity, you know, we're in the north area. We're not going to have that that technician go from north to south. You know, we don't want him to spend one hour on the in a truck, getting from one job to the next job. So. We've got a great dispatch team and we have a, we call it a shared services team. So our dispatch team manages three different companies and soon to be a fourth. And, you know, that team and with some very advanced software that we use called Service Titan, uh, we're always laser focused on trying to maximize efficiency. In a perfect world, you want them to go to neighborhood house to neighborhood house to neighborhood house and turn wrenches instead of listening to radio going down the road. Um, so that, that that's the key. And then in the right type customers our, our you know our, our focus really is a certain demographic uh we we kind of analyze this market uh we, we're in a portion of mecklenburg county that has about 150,000 citizens and it's also southern iredale that's probably got another 75 so let's say 200 a little bit north of 200,000 well there's 6,000 homes valued at 400,000 greater in that market and that's we're focusing on marketing marketing towards that customer base and then also commercial business um, so we have a you know laser focus on a certain customer base that probably on a per transaction basis is spending more money with us. So that helps get that that number up to that point. And then extremely uh, focused route management is the other way to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. Before we before Victor uh, hits the waste industry side in the service business, what does marketing look like? Or do you just show up at the shop every day and people are like, my toilet is broke. I, I need you to fix it. So, so what, what does marketing look like? Is, do you even have like a sales team? Just walk us through that part of your business. We, we've kind of hit on the operations and the org structure, but I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah, you know, that, that's been, for, for where we are now and, and, and talking about the Zoom up. So we, we've got um, eight Zoomers and, and basically eight businesses and, and we're in the, and, and these are dirty jobs for the most part. We're in the uh, septic and grease trap pump business, the uh, rest, large loss restoration business, electric, HVAC, plumbing, hardscape, landscape, landscape and auto body shop. Um, they all have some different uh, ways to do marketing, but I'll just pick on the, uh, what we call the MEP, which is the mechanical, electrical and plumbing or HVAC, electrical and plumbing. They have a uh, similar marketing strategy. We, we hired a growth strategist and came on the team about a year ago and she's laser focused on making sure the word gets out to Google ads and through um, search engine optimization uh, process to make sure if somebody types in plumber near me and they're Cornelius, they're going to find us. Right. So that has worked way better than I anticipated. I, I guess I was a little cocky when we started some of these business. Oh, you can rest on Griffin Brothers reputation. You've been around 55 years. The phone will ring. Now we, we haven't hurt that opportunity for the phone to ring, but, our, our, our customers are coming way greater volume than anticipated through some of that marketing strategy. Um, now, once we get a customer, obviously we're going to try to retain that customer for any other needs that they have. And we do cross pollinate. We do promote and make sure the customer is aware that we have these other services available to them. Um, so long-term we would anticipate word of mouth and um, reputation. We'll, we'll do, we'll drive that bus, but right now we do a decent amount of, you know, 
social ultimate, you know, social media type advertising to get the phones to ring. Is that growth strategist at the Zoom up level, like at the management level, or is that at one of the specific Zoomer companies? Yeah, so a shared services team. So I mentioned Ann, and we just recently, Ann hired Jordan, a digital specialist. So we've got two employees that are full-time focused on marketing and, and our branding and stuff. They're shared amongst these eight companies. And, and they are, and we, every month we go back and, and it, we don't, they don't like clock in and like clock out like a professional attorney or whatever, but it's close to that. So every month we analyze how much time that the shared services folks spent with the different companies and we allocate their costs uh, appropriate to that. So it's a little bit of a counting uh, process, but it, um, if you look at the numbers, it's amazing how much it saved our, our Zoom up companies because of the of sharing. And we, we share a CPO, chief people officer. We share a, a accounting team. We share these two digital marketing folks. The dispatch team is shared amongst three companies and soon to be four. So these economy scales that we've realized by the shared services. And then uh, as they grow, they don't have to, you know, wear somebody out and then hire somebody. Then that person's got too much capacity. We kind of can spread that out more. So, um, yeah, in addition to sharing business leads and, and, and sharing best practices, which our Zoomers get together to do, we have the shared services team to help scale it up. That's one of my favorite advantages of a holding company model is that you are able to centralize all of the back office and, and marketing and, and finance pieces of it to, to kind of spread those costs over a bunch of different companies versus having one person that's at 20% capacity, but having to pay them 100%. Yeah, we're trying to ease some of that. It, it, it's not a perfect world because, you know, and, and I, I don't have, I'm, I'll never tell you that I have a favorite Zoomer. They all have their own special qualities, but they're different leaders and, and they sometimes have different opinions on, on shared services. So, you know, sometimes it's herding cats and herding opinions. And so th- it's not easy. And, and the, the team, the leaders that I have that manage that, they get the burn of that sometimes. So they'll, they'll get eight different opinions on how to execute something. But when it's all said and done, they look at that monthly cost allocation. They realize they're, they're paying a fraction for the quality of work they're getting. It, it, it makes things work. So circling back to kind of the Griffin Brothers uh, evolution over time, you guys grew the tire business. Um, I think you said it was like 20 million plus in revenue. And then, um, and then you transitioned into communication. Um, I'd be interested to hear kind of uh, what you're talking about, what you, what you mentioned there. And then um, also just interested to hear about um, how you guys got into the waste business. Yeah. And Victor, I, I wish I could tell you that we sit down and create the business plan. We just start executing. <laughs> these, these things just came about as they came about. And, and it wasn't linear quite like you, you said. And, and I'm sure I didn't explain it too well. But basically, in, in 87, when I got out of school, we were one and a half million revenue company. And then within an 18-month period, two opportunities came to our front door. One was communication. And it was from a, from a tire customer. This tire customer from the east side of Charlotte came to my office and said, what should my son do? What should he do next? And he said, I'm in the cell phone business. Cellular phones just had started. This showed my age. This was in the 80s. And, and he, my dad kind of says, what do you know about cell phones? I didn't know. And you can't, back then you could Google. But, but basically heard the pitch and I said, well, this makes sense. So we got in the communication business. And then we had another customer come in who in the northern part of the, of the town was trying to open a construction landfill. Actually, back then they were called stump dumps. He was trying to open a land clearing landfill. And uh, Sam Patilio is his name. And Sam uh, was African-American. And he basically told my dad, you're the only white person to trust. 
I'm trying to take my family's land and convert it to a land clearing landfill and I'm broke. What can I do? Dad comes to my office and says, what do you know about the waste business? And I knew nothing. And uh, the only thing I knew to do was call our customers who needed the use of that type facility. And those were graders at the time. And I, they were good phone customers too. And I would basically interview. I said, what do you know about this business? And they always said the same thing. I said, Mike, I don't, only thing I can tell you is that those guys stuff their mattresses with cash, just get in the business. So I go back to dad. So I did my Google research. Yeah, this is, this is in the eighties, no Google. And I said, everybody I talked to says, just get into it. So we just got into it. So within an 18 month period, we went from a one business to three businesses. We went from tires and got communications and quickly got into waste. And um, they all three had a different path. You know, I got kind of lucky in the communication business. I, I, uh, because I was a tenured family business, the Altel, the provider, gave us the best contract in Charlotte to represent them because they were trying to get Brent, you know, reptile people to represent them. And when I realized I had the best contract, I got everybody to run their numbers through me. So I, I grew rather rapidly because all the other independent agents started running their numbers through me. So we became the largest in the nation for Altel. And then, but when the waste business took off, which it did, waste is our kind of our, our cash cow business. Um, I got fortunate. I had a great uh, team and I sold the communication business 10 years later to one of those team members. So then we could more laser focus on, on waste. Um, you know, waste was kind of an instant success. You know, we, we, um, in, in, in North Carolina, they changed the regulations. They created this category called construction and demolition in the early nineties. And we were the, we were aggressive. We were the first to apply for that app, that type permit. And we were the very first C and E landfill all of North Carolina. So if you can imagine 1992, we're the first construction landfill in Charlotte and Charlotte was booming. So we took all the construction waste. So, cause they, they didn't have to go to a garbage landfill. It could come to us. And we had a, a, a you know, one of those wonderful 100% market shares for a couple of years. And then we, we got some competition, but we opened up two other facilities in Charlotte. So we, we basically have a 60% market share of Charlotte's construction waste. And we have a, facility in Raleigh and a facility near Myrtle Beach. That's our network of five that we own. But that, it, you know, those three businesses, div divest in communication, doubled down in the waste and doubled down in the tires. So they, they both started growing, went from one store to 10 stores and one landfill to five in, in a fun run, basically in the 90s through the, through the 2000s. And then as the waste business started kicking off and, and by the way, the waste business is not that simple. I, that's why I have no hair for those. I don't, I don't think this is a video presentation, but my bald head is a result of the stress of permitting landfills. There's, there's a lot of uh, NIMBYs and I self-labeled caveman. NIMBYs is not in my backyard. No one wants us as a neighbor. And then caveman was citizens against virtually everything. And that would be somebody that could come from 100 miles away that just wanted to fight you because they thought they wanted to fight you. So, uh, uh, but we were pretty fortunate to go through probably about a 70 landfill permits and got five permitted. So uh, uh, I guess batting average, that's not, that's not so good come to think of it for, for baseball, but, um, but obviously th those successes and, and waste and, and perhaps maybe success in learning how to, to permit those um, helped us grow our, our real estate portfolio too. So by the early two thousands, we were um, pretty aggressively, um, citing real estate that we would entitle and build for a long-term hold, which is what we've done. And then I did mention the golf business. So the, the, my, 
my brother and I got in trouble as a kid and we were throwing rocks at cars and, and where we grew up a little bit of a rough area and dad comes home that, and that night we, we moved that weekend to a house at Pine Island Country Club, which is a golf course in, in Northwest Charlotte. I think it was to keep us from becoming little hellions. And uh, um, it, that, that's the course that we bought. So in, in 2003, when I went back from my 20 year high school reunion, went back to that club, it was the same people with the same poker table playing the same games just a little older and they were about bankrupt. So we, we basically uh, uh, took, we, we bought the note from the bank and then and we committed to spend uh, two point, I think it was the exact number, it was like 2.62 million in improvements in addition to the million for the bank note. And we ended up spending 11 million. So we, we kind of over blew our budget and uh, it was, but it is fun going back in time. So of course we grew up as kids, we bought and renovated and we, we still own as, as part of our portfolio there's no money in that but it's it's a fun thing to say that you own a golf course yeah definitely i, I would love to own a, a golf course one day easy way to make a million in a golf business it starts about five million so go, yeah that's go make your first would you would you mind just describing kind of the business model or economics behind landfills sure so um in in a landfill is a component of what we do. So we basically recycle, reclaim, or landfill construction and demolition waste. And obviously, the more we recycle um, for profit, the better. Uh, unfortunately, recycling is not that profitable of the thing, although we still do it to uh, increase the longevity of our landfills. But, you know, um, our model, you, you want to be close as you can be to where there's new construction going on. And, and that's counterintuitive. And your landfill, real estate's expensive. So if you're, if you're close to where the construction is, you got to pay more for the real estate, but it's almost like going to a convenience store to pick up milk versus going to a grocery store to pick up milk. You go to the convenience store and pay a premium because you didn't want to go through the hassle of going to the grocery store. Well, our landfills, we went through the hassle of putting ours in close proximity to growth. So yeah, we did pay a premium. We did go through extra hassle of permitting them, but because of that we can charge a little more because um, the way construction waste works, there's typically a house being built with a 30 yard open face container in the front where they throw all the little bits and pieces. Um, those haulers are our customers. They bring us that waste. Um, we actually are opening up a state-of-the-art uh, material recovery facility called acronym MRF in North Mac, and we'll take that and we'll go through a major recycling process to divert about 75% of that waste from the landfill through this automated mechanism that we're creating. But basically, our goal is to take that waste in, recycle what we can, what we can't, we landfill it. And then that, that customer, if we're convenient to the growth, as you can imagine, they pick up that container, take it to the landfill, and they can get it right back out to, to the next house more efficiently. So um, th that's kind of our model. We, we, um, we have one that's kind of out in the boondocks, but most of our facilities are close to where construction is. And the, the, the numbers are fairly um, way better than average of a regular business because these are a little bit like duopolies, you know. As I mentioned, we, we have three landfills that serve the Charlotte market, and there's there's basically four landfills total. So we, we've got a pretty good uh, percent uh, market share here. Um, in, in the Wake County, there's three landfills. We're one of the three that, that take construction emissions. So you know, just by those numbers, they, they work at a little bit higher margin. Um, it's a complex business with a lot of long-term risk that you have to mitigate, manage, and we've got a great team. Uh, we've got an um, environmental compliance director and, and we've got a team that manages all that for me. Um, so it, it's, it's a tough business to get into. The barrier to entry is, you know, 
of those ones I failed at, those 70, 60 something that I failed at, often I was spending a hundred thousand to a million dollars to find out whether I was going to fail or not. So, you know, not many people can, can do that. And publicly traded companies can't do it anymore. They, they can't because it's, they're, they're dealing with quarterly performance and it's hard to justify, you know, 65 failures with five successes. Um, um, so anyway, that, that's, that's our business there. We, you know, I think maybe it's cause of my age. I haven't grown that as much as I haven't spent the time there as much as I used to. I'm, maybe spending more time on the zoom up side, but I often wonder whether, why I'm not permitting other landfills. Um, I, and I, and I'm, I'm, I've got a couple young men that I'm looking to maybe train to, to do that on, on our behalf, but uh, it, it's a great model. If you can get into it, if you got the patience, got the capital to do it. I'm just curious for, for probably the majority of us who are just not familiar with the landfill business, our relationship with trash probably ends with when we put it in the, in the dumpster and it gets taken away. But what's the difference between a construction, is it a construction only landfill and, and an actual just normal residential, you know, kind of garbage landfill? Just explain the difference if there is one. Right. Well, there is. There's a big difference. And, and there's three primary categories in every state. There's land clearing and dirt debris, LCID. We kind of call them stump dumps. It takes dirt and trees. Uh, th- those are less sophisticated, obviously. There's C&D, construction and demolition. So we take down, tore down facilities that have been permitted not to have asbestos and issues. Or we take new construction debris, which is probably 90% of our business. And then there's MSW, municipal solid waste facilities. Those are garbage landfills. That's when you take that container to your curb of, of waste that when they pick that up, that's what it does. It, typically a, a publicly traded company like Republic or Waste Management owns the container, owns the truck, owns the transfer station, owns the landfill. It's a vertically integrated business. Our business is not vertically integrated. We, we own the waste facilities and we rely on hauling customers, entrepreneurs basically, to go independently pick up the waste from an individual house and bring it to us. That business is not as easy to vertically integrate because it's one haul at a time, right? You know, in a in a if you got a garbage truck and you're you're picking up those containers, you're doing a whole community before you go to the transfer station and before it goes to the landfill. And and that's why the big boys like Republic and Waste Management have created this that whole vertically integrated business. And uh, that's fascinating business to me. I, I don't have the uh, tenure or time or patience to try to get into their space and they don't get in my space because my space is not easily vertically integrated from A to Z. So we, I have my little world, they have their world in waste, but there is a big difference between the two. I would love to know the reasons behind why the failure rate is, is so high, because that to me seems like that in capital seems to me to be the biggest just two barriers to, to entry. So is it the NIMBYs and the cavemen? Are there other reasons? So every county, I think I would guess in the nation now has zoning. You know, back in the day, there used to not be a zoning. You just do what you want to do on your land. Imagine zoning that. really, zoning happened just in the last few decades for the most part. So back in that day, some of these old landfills were, were permitted without entitlements, right? They just did it by right. Um, every county now has a stipulation that if you do a, if you want to put a landfill there you have to go through a much more stringent uh, special use permit process and, and and the state dictates that our state of North Carolina has got some of the more stringent uh, regulations so you, you, you can't sneak up and just all of a sudden put a landfill somewhere you have to go the, the public has to be fully aware of everything you're doing but as you can imagine it's hard to have the political fortitude to permit a landfill 
even if you desperately need it in your county. So the failure rate is that we couldn't convince the leaders that there was a real need there. It's no hard feelings. I, I get where they're coming from. You know, when you got 150 very angry people and, and yelling that, you know, we don't want this in our backyard, it's, it's, it's a bit difficult to have the fortitude to do it. Now, one of our tricks to the trade is that we didn't, we always communicated to neighbors first. And also we always tried to put ourselves in an area that had a lot of uh, compatible neighbors, you know, concrete companies and chemical companies and stuff like that. Yes, that real estate costs more, uh, but, but it was a more compatible neighbor than just like an individual homeowner. Right. Like an industrial type of area versus an actual residential zoning or close to a residential neighborhood. Right. But unfortunately, that, that term caveman, I mentioned citizens against virtually everything. Even if you pick the perfect site, you might have somebody coming from 45 minutes away to an hour to fight because they think that there's something wrong with what, what we're doing. So, uh, yeah, I, I do consider myself an environmentalist, which I, I would say that seems counterintuitive to being I'm a waste management person. But I, but I do believe if it's kind of like that golden rule thing, too, if I live beside a landfill, how, how would I want that landfill operator to act? And uh, I think we've got a great team. We act with high integrity and make sure that we're a good custodian of how to manage waste. And I think that uh, you know, we have a little more than a 30 year reputation in, in the in the waste business and I, I'm proud of our record. Um, and, and, you know, we, and we've got, um, you know, probably a century's capacity at some of these landfills. So we'll, we'll be around a while with the facilities that we have. So Mike, I, I think that I heard you say a few minutes ago that it would take about, it took you about $500,000 to a million before you like figured out that that potential opportunity in waste was a failure. So what, what was like, like, what does that capital go towards? Yeah. A lot of engineers. I've got a lot of, uh, I get a lot of Christmas baskets from engineers that, that I pay bills to. So uh, yeah, multi six digits annually with uh, professional firms that help design and create these, these uh, facilities. Cause you know, in order to get approval, you got to show what it's going to look like. And you got to show you know, the original design, what it's going to look like post closure. So you got to go ahead and say, you know, 80 years from now when it's finished, this is what it's going to look like. So um, it's spending money with those. And then really, as you get in the weeds of, of permitting it, you, you, you see what the hot buttons are for those town leaders and, and, and obviously the political leaders. And you keep accommodating what their wishes are. So uh, you would believe some of the studies that I've done. So uh, my, my uh, I don't, I don't, this is my worst. We, we tried to permit one in Rock Hill and uh, we were basically two and a half men pregnant on that deal before it failed. And then we technically uh, went through a litigation process to say that we were done wrong and we, we actually won, but it took, it took it to the South Carolina State Supreme Court. So we started that facility in 2003 and then we, we, got, we won in 2016, but it wasn't worth opening. All the regulations had changed. It was 13 years. So it was just, it was basically right off. There's, there's a bit of a silver lining. We actually gifted the land to the nation's Ford land trust and there was some tax benefit to it, but when it was all said and done, it was a failure. And, and that's, that was, that was my worst nightmare story to tell about permitting. That's, that's the, probably the biggest lesson that I learned just spending a year and a half in real estate development is that time can, can kill all deals. Um, oh, yeah. at least on the real estate yeah. side. So 
Before we transition into the real estate side of things, though, I was really excited to get you on the podcast because I wanted, I was hoping that you would be able to maybe use this uh, somewhat selfishly to promote the Zoom Up program. So I would love for you to spend some time just telling everybody what that is and how you structure those uh, investments into young entrepreneurs. And the last piece is the why behind it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned time. I don't know that I want to promote Zoom up too much because I'm not really looking for more partners right now because I don't have the time to process what's what's in front of me. Maybe that's my failure as a little bit of a micromanager. I haven't learned to delegate, but uh, but but I, I'll, I'll gladly tell you about what we're doing because I have passion for it. And I hope others like you and I know both you two are um, will find a path similar, I hope. And I'll be glad to be your biggest cheerleader and perhaps investor, but more cheerleader. Um, we've talked about this. I'm a huge believer that the next generation entrepreneurs need to consider to get into the service-based businesses. One is a great opportunity. You know, I I do think with the right level of expertise and leadership, you can work on a pretty steady 20% EBITDA in all these trade businesses. And in my opinion, that's a pretty good EBITDA. I don't know how to compare it to everything, but it's a healthy number. Um, and it's fulfilling. I, I get my, you know, no one wants to say they're, they're, they're dealing with somebody's poop as far as septic business or plumbing or whatever. But where my passion is, and I'm passionate for my Zoomers, they're helping uh, their team, the, their employees, they're helping them provide a, uh, a lifestyle for the family. And we're, we're passionate about, we've created a, a position here called personal success manager, where we have Mary, who is volunteering to work with our teams on a totally confidential basis to help them better manage their personal life, uh, whether it's insurance costs, uh, um, you know, financial habits and stuff like that, because holistically, we want them to be successful personally. And so my passion is um, putting young, sharp people in leadership positions, teaching them this market lead concept to where they're finding leaders under them to create a network that'll be a nationwide brands. And I, and I do think we have that ability to create uh, nationwide brands and, and, I know Victor coming from Atlanta, my, my favorite company to follow is Chick-fil-A and what the Kathy family has done in, 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 in that space is extraordinary. Now, you know, you know, whether you say the health of fast food or whatever that you can make, whatever case you want to make, but how they run that business is extraordinary. And we're just duplicating what they're doing and applying it to these other trades. So I, I would assume they've got multiple thousand operators now and we hope to have more, multiple thousand market leaders in, in across the Sun Belt. Not too excited about going north and not too excited about going northwest, but I'd like to get us through Texas at some point in the coming uh, decades with, with these companies. And, and I do think we can uh, scale it up as long as we follow this approach. So zoom up that you know that that's the idea. I've got uh, eight young men and hopefully soon some young women at some point that that are uh, as young as 25 and as old as 40, but the average age is typically 30. Um, I, I do think the sweet spot of entrepreneur is that is a 30. That's a magic number in my eyes, but it's somewhere between 25 and 35 is, is the magic number. There's some growing up we all have to do. And, and I think that that's, you know, and there's a learning phase here. Your first 30 of your life, which is, you know, birth to 30 is learning. The next 30 is probably harvesting and making, making money. And the, the last 30 spending it and giving away. So, uh, um, and that's, uh, that's kind of, you know, that 30 age, that's where they've learned enough. We can help maybe fine tune the leadership skills and let them start harvesting and pursuing their, their path. Um, so, and there's many other businesses we could get into at some point, 
Um, I just got to figure out how to scale this thing up. Uh, and, 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 and I'm probably be a little bit of the cog in the wheel or the, the funnel right now. So, uh, and, and we're new. I mean, this, this, I, I don't believe in doing things rapidly as far as, you know, just for sake of being speed, we, we're three years into it as a combined companies were north of 25 million last year. We're going to be north of 31 million this year. And that's organic growth for the most part. There has been some tuck in acquisitions, but, uh, it's, it's fairly rapid organic growth. And uh, matter of fact, my shared services team, if they, if, if they heard me say that I have ambition to open up a few more, they would shoot me because they're overtaxed right now. So uh, that's between us. So don't, don't, don't publish this podcast or, or don't, don't, tell, don't let them listen to it. <laughs> would you mind talking through the structure, how the partnership works if you know, a young person comes on to be a, to be a Zoomer? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love telling this because all my friends tell me I'm an idiot for the structure. So, so basically <laughs> I, I'm a long-term 15% partner and, and the Zoomers are 85% partners. Um, the market leads won't have access, don't need access to that LLC. They'll have their own LLC and their, their bottom line performance will be issued to them in checks, you know, basically monthly checks and annual checks in addition to their paycheck. Um, so we do have a common payroll provider. Griffin Brothers provides the payroll to all the employees as a common payroll. That just obviously gets expensed and paid by those individual Zoomers. So the eight partners that I have are basic 8515 uh, partners. I supply the capital at a competitive rate of like prime plus one and a half um, to help grow, grow that space. As I have capital exposed disproportionately, in other words, more than 15%, exposure. I have more operation rights. I'm, I'm basically the, the, I guess, veto rights or whatever you call it. All that's never come up because I don't think that we've ever had a situation I've been in conflict with, with my, my partners. Um, the, the goal is for them obviously to pay back that money and, and put themselves into a position of, of acquiring money through capital, through banks, commercial banks. You know, the cheapest money in the world is commercial banks, but it's hardest money to get you got to have a couple of years strong performance before you can really start utilizing that type uh, growth strategy. But that, that's our strategy. Um, you know, the brick and mortar opportunities when a real estate player, I'd love nothing more to partner with my Zoomers to, to buy warehouse space that they need and, and let us have a separate LLC and a separate partnership there. That's stuff that's already on the discussion now, but it's kind of a simple strategy, you know, 85, 15, they got 85. Um, that will, will, scale up or like we like to say zoom up through this market lead process. Almost all of them have that, um, but almost a little bit different. You know, the, the plumbing electrical, that's basically van based. You keep buying vans every time you, you get a new technician. The, the septic business is a quarter million dollar pump truck and a million and a half dollar dewatering facility. It's a different barrier to entry and different, different components. Um, auto collision is the business we're in now. That's uh, brick and mortar. That's very, we, we know that business because it's very similar to the tire and automotive repair. Um, it, he'll, he'll have a different path of scale. Um, so they all have a different path, but it's a very similar structure that we give them. So that 15% stake in terms of the capital comes in the form of like, I think, I think you mentioned to me before, it comes in the form of funding like the startup costs or maybe the salary for the first year or two for the market leader. Yeah, we basically create a line of credit. So um, whatever they need as far as capital, obviously the supply at the beginning with, with understanding they can't just go crazy and buy a bunch of stuff, but you know, incremental buying they do. The second they have positive cash flow, they're paying down the line of credit. Um, so it's, it's kind of a up and down every month, up and down moving 
line of credit. And then they're, they're striving to be self-sustainable to where when they get a couple years under their belt, they can then go to uh, the banks and, and use their balance sheet and their income statement to acquire the, the loans that they need to grow their business. And, and then, so the goal for me long-term is to, um, you know, them to be self-sustainable. They don't owe me any money. I have a 15% ownership and my goal is, is distributions. Yeah. You know, the, 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 obviously that is the goal is to create a business with a 20% EBITDA that has the ability to continue to grow, but also distribute distributions. This is not, this is an evergreen private equity concept. We, we I, I'm, I'm a, uh, Benton's heard me say this before. I've I, I got a lot of friends in the private equity business and, I, and those are good friends, but I don't believe in their model. This, this whole concept of buying something and, and growing it and flipping it in seven years is foreign to me. And, and then I, and it's, they've been right, really successful because our government's kept interest rates way too low for 20 something years. And it's created a great problem in our economy with disparity of, of uh, the have and have nots, but uh, you can't undo that. And there's been a lot of people that made a lot of money in that. But uh, our goal is to, we want the Zoomers to run these businesses to, to retirement. And then we want them to perpetuate it by selling it to a, you know, a key person in their business and then let that business go. It's like a law firm or CPA. Um, and these can turn into family business too. So it, it may be that they, um, a few of them have kids now. I think the, the well, no, uh, Jimmy, who's my, Viva Electric. Jimmy actually has an older kid. He has a 16-year-old, but uh, most of them have babies. So we'll, we'll see what happens with them as they get older. So every Zoom Up partnership so far has been, the Zoomer has started from scratch, correct? No, you know, and I had to write, I always forget these numbers. I wrote this down. So th- there have been four startups. There have been two businesses that started before I met them. And I, I, I bought a piece of their business, so to speak. And there's been two acquisitions. Um, the, the four startups actually after they started had some acquisition opportunities. Um, and I'll, I'll pick on one, uh, two young men partnered together, two Tar Heels. Oh yeah. That's another thing. So I'm, I'm a little bit Tar Heel biased. So I've got, uh, of my eight, I've got four Tar Heels, two UNCC Charlotte grads, one UVA grad and one high school grad. So that's, that's my makeup of my eight partners. Um, and I've also got a program called Entrepreneur Apprentices. I've had five apprentices that have worked for me over, since 2008. And they're all five Keenan Flagg or Tar Heels, by the way. So being I'm speaking oh, to Keenan Flagg or Tar Heels now. So um, uh, that, that's, that's the makeup of, of, of the group. The, the, the startups, you know, they, they kind of had to get their street cred. In and, out. and two of them, Houston Summers and Sebastian Williams, are partnered together. They started a company called Ravel, which is a classic restoration business. Basically, bought two pickup trucks, two trailers, you know, two thirty thousand dollars trucks, twenty something thousand dollars each equipment, and they hit the ground running doing restoration work. And they did a good job, really did a great job. Uh, less than eighteen months later, we had a, a acquisition opportunity of a ten million revenue business, and we bought half of that business. And and Kevin Sasser and Sasser Restoration is the company. So uh, Sasser, they're now our, our we're now partners with them. So we're, we're basically 50-50 partners. And me and the, those two Zoomers are 50% owners of what's now called Sasser Restoration. And Kevin Sasser is our partner in that. And we have a wonderful growth strategy. And it's taken off like wildfire. And then three to five years, Kevin plans to sell us his 50% as it's hopefully much more increased in value. Uh, I hope I'm his biggest fan too, because if it obviously increases, that means that the overall business is greater in value. So that's an example of, 
getting in the business, learning it, and then quickly having a large acquisition. And that acquisition is way larger than us. We were probably trending two million revenue. We bought a 10 million revenue business. Um, uh, the landscape business, uh, uh, Grayson has done a great job with Southern Cut Landscaping. And we uh, purchased the irrigation hardscape business to help further accelerate his growth. So we, we will do some strategic acquisitions. Um, but, but I am a believer uh, more so now than ever that you can just start the business with zero revenue. And um, you may have to acquire talent with the, with the experience in that space, but you can grow a business around that talent and scale it up almost better than you can through acquisitions. Because you know, sometimes acquisition, you're inheriting some culture that may be backwards to your beliefs and um, unraveling that culture and restarting it. It's like starting the business from over. It's almost worse. So um, you know, if you'd asked me that question a few years ago, I would have told you all of them were going to be acquisitions. And now in reality, I would tell you most all the future ones will be startups. It's interesting you say that just, I mean, the search fund craze is so, I, I feel like it's so prevalent. I feel like it's everything I read and see on Twitter and, and especially in the, in the kind of sweaty service business space, everyone tends to lean towards just buying a business rather than starting one from scratch. Yeah, man, I, I got, I'm going to bite my lip there because I've got some good friends that are searchers and some friends that have funded search funds. Again, my, my core problem is this concept of putting a young sharp leader into a business knowing you're going to sell it five to seven years that just makes no sense to me and i don't think there's evergreen search funds right now i don't think there's folks that are creating search funds they're saying hey buy this business run it for 40 years and, and create dividends i think there's still this idea of using some lever and and expanding the yield by, by using some debt and flipping it um, but there, there's a lot of searches out there there's there was it was over two dozen in Charlotte, there was self-searching and there was a young man that uh, ended up fighting his business, but he had kind of created a club and I went to meet him. Actually, I think I hosted a social and, and met a lot of them. And uh, I didn't want to say this, but I was thinking, oh, this is just kind of depressing to me. These are sharp young people that need to have a business and they need to have a long run rate, not some hurry up, find a business, run it for five years and flip it. And, and, and the people who were giving the money were demanding that. It just, it just frustrates me. Um, so I, I hope and pray that there's a there's a, another chapter coming that the, the same concept of putting young people in these businesses to, to grow and learn them. But don't do it with this right now current search format. So we'll see. I actually just emailed you a piece by a, a pretty famous search fund and sort of small business entrepreneurship acquisition professor from Yale. His name's A.J. Wasserstein. And he actually put out a nice piece about the differences between uh, the compounding effect of like holding a company long-term versus, you know, that three to seven year flip. Uh, so I couldn't, I could not agree more. The one question I did want to ask about starting versus building though, and this sort of gets to what you mentioned earlier about generational wealth inequality and just access to capital for a lot of different people it's hard for some people that d didn't come from a good family background and have no capital saved up who are hustlers. They're willing to work hard and roll up their sleeves, but they have zero capital. How, how would you, how, how would you, how would you like to go out about solving that access to, to, to capital and opportunity? Yeah. Yeah. You know, some of it is patience, right? I always try to reflect on what my dad did, you know, dad, Again, he'll jokingly tell you, they asked him to leave high school. He, 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 they just got tired of looking at him, but, but he did graduate. 
and but extreme work ethic, right? And yeah, he did have an opportunity. His his uncle had started in the tire business, and his uncle needed a partner, and and that was his inroad. But you know, he, he worked 26 years of very hard work and provided for us as a family. It was a great family, but his success was not overnight success. We we really expanded up. So my my two cents is if you got if you got a desire to own a, own a business and you got passion and you want to do that, just get in and do it and don't go borrow a bunch of money from people, man, try your best not to borrow money from anybody and, and, and learn, learn your business and, and just have patience. We, we have this unfortunate, you know, Google where you can research these success stories and we don't hear about the million unsuccess stories. So people feel like they got to get somewhere quick. Um, so you know, and I, I know I've told you this, Benton and Victor, as I get to know you better, I'll tell you, you know, I love that you, you both have this passion to own your own business. And I know you're going to be successful doing that, but don't think you got to get somewhere really quick. You know, don't take other people's money unless you have to. And, and then scale this thing up. You'll, you'll be shocked. You'll, you'll look back in a few years and you realize that you, 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 you'll get frustrated because you have, we all have impatience, but uh, a little bit of patience, a little bit of hard work and it, it'll all take care of itself. And, you know, money is cheap, but that's caused the problem, too. You know, don't get me wrong. We've we've enjoyed 2% too low interest rates for 20-something years because we have a decent amount of debt. We probably have $20 million debt in our – I had the number somewhere total in our business. And, uh, and we're I think we're paying, on average, 4.2% all of it together. Some of it's – we have a non-recourse that's about to expire, but it was at 6%, so that was a high one. Um, so we do use some debt. And, and we've taken advantage of it. But I'm telling you, that that 2% too low for 20-something years is going to come to roost at some point, and it's going to be a nasty um, challenge to capitalism. And it, it makes me very nervous. So, uh, But, you know, I, I, don't, I don't lose too much sleep on it because I know the business that I'm in, there's still going to be that need. You know, we haven't invented a better way to get water from A to B. It's through a pipe. Electricity's got to go through a, a piece of wire. All these things need a wrench at some point to turn. So uh, I, I think that I've vested in things that have a pretty safe path uh, of longevity, no matter where the economy is. But, uh, you know, there's, there's some, some probably some troubled waters that's going to hit as a result of this uh, huge deficit we've created and these, these low interest rates that made people do some silly things. Certainly. And, uh, you know, Amazon can ship a toilet to your house, but they can't send a plumber with it. So uh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's kind of my, my, um, I like that. That's, that's, that's what I love about the service businesses. You know, they're local and there is some, uh, there is a little bit of a, an Amazon defense built in. So, uh, well, Mike, this has been awesome. I, you know, we want to respect your time. We didn't get to real estate. So at some point we'll have to have a, maybe a round two and, and just really dive into to real estate because I know you have invested some of your family's capital in developing and acquiring real estate. And, but this has been awesome. I got three final questions for you and then we'll just wrap up. I'm curious, are there any personal habits or practices that you're dedicated to that help, you know, keep you physically fit or mentally fit or that you just enjoy doing and have helped you over the years? You know, I, I'm a runner. My, my therapy is, is running um, a minimum weekly, but, but in a perfect world, three times a week. And that's probably one of the moments I get to listen to music. Of late, I've been listening to podcasts and I've been listening to some of these circle of confidence podcast so you got me away from my country music a little bit but uh, th th that's my therapeutic uh, exit I, I wish I could exercise more my my wife is a health nut and a fitness nut so I guess she pushes me and and, and that's wonderful because I, I need that because I, I do love the things I do I love my family I love my friends and I love business and 
you know, and my, my prayers at night are basically how can I better balance all those things? You love all those things. You still have to have a balance, but, uh, but definitely that's my therapeutic thing is exercise as far as running. I hear and you. I apologize. You may ask me another question. I forgot what it was. No, no, that, that you hit it. You hit it. Yeah. I think my prayers might be that we get 48 hours in a day so I could fit it all in. True. What, uh, what personal values or beliefs are most important to you and how do they impact and inform your day-to-day business? Yeah, you know, I, I am a Christian and I do try to base my policies in, in business you know, on, on the Bible. I'm not a Bible thumper and I'm not a, a avid, I'm not a frequent reader. I don't read as much as I should, but I, I, I know the basic principles and, and I try to live by those. And I think it served me pretty well. Um, but it's all boils down to the golden rule. I, I, that's probably, if I had to quote, that's it, right? You know, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. And man, if you just do that in everything in your life, it makes life easy. I don't have a troubled life. And, and, and think about it. I mean, I'm in some controversial things, you know, permitting landfills and all this stuff. You would think that I have some enemies out there, but I, I'd like to think I don't. And, and I, I hope that I never will. To just, you know, and, and, and I don't think it had, you have to be a Christian. I think it's just a faith-based belief. I think all faiths that are out there that are, that are large ones have good principles if you truly understand the, the, the book that, that you should follow. Certainly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Victor and I are both Christians as well, but just finding that common ground of the golden rule, treating someone the way that you would like to be treated. I remember listening to a, uh, to a, to a Charlie Munger interview where he basically said, you know, I try to be the best partner I can be and think long-term and treat others the way that, uh, that I want to be treated. Because what I found out is it's actually good for my pocketbook. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the ultimate irony is we don't cut corners and do all those things that way it, it makes you i guess ironically wealthier anyway and not not just and and believes it's wealthier in, in your in your wallet which is a nice byproduct what business hasn't been started yet but needs to be and i guess another way of asking this would be if you could snap your fingers and solve one huge pain point for you personally or professionally what would it be wow yeah i'm so service focused and there's so many businesses we're not in yet that we could be in uh, related to managing uh, properties and so forth. There's many of them out there. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued with crawl space management. Just, you know, there's, there's a lot of things under there that no one likes to look at. You know, I, I'm always migrating to things that no one else likes to do and, and no one likes to get to crawl space. No one likes to mess with plumbing, septic, et cetera. So that, that would be one uh, for sure. Um, you know, it, 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 uh, the, maybe the final thing you mentioned real estate. Yeah, I, I, we do have a passion real estate and that'll be a piece of it. But I, I think we have um, maybe recalibrate a little bit. We're, we're putting a little bit more money towards these service-based businesses versus real estate. And, and I'm, I'm excited about that. And I think that that will hopefully generate dividends and we can keep investing that real estate too. But uh, yeah, any, any service-based business that has buried entry, that has a void, that, that's what I'd love to invest in. Perfect. Well, if you have one for sale that's got a good culture and cares about its employees, we know, and you're in the Charlotte area, we know who you should give a call to. So, well, Mike Griffin, managing partner of Griffin Brothers, this was awesome. Really appreciate you taking the time, and we're looking forward to staying in touch. Looking forward to seeing Chapel Hill soon with some uh, some golf clubs in tow. Yeah, we got to exactly. tee up this summer, Mike. I agree, Victor. We'll, we'll get you down to Charlotte at some point, and look forward to meeting you up there in Chapel Hill. Gosh. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, 
go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.